Welcome to Coming Out Evil. I'm Harley Honey. And I'm Mick Sedusa. Join our descent into villainy. Hello, welcome back to Coming Out Evil. It's another solo episode with me, your host, Harley Honey, and of course, lovingly edited by my darling, Mick Sedusa. And don't worry if you are missing our dynamic duo vibes, we will be back together very soon. Not next week, but the week after that, we will be together probably talking about Shrek. So you have that to look forward to. But yeah, we're going to do a little bit of queer history today. Chances are when you get me alone, you're going to get a little dose of history because I like history. <laughs> today we're talking specifically about the oldest profession. Can you guess what it is? I'll give you a second. Yeah, it's sex work. It's fucking and sucking for queen. That is the oldest profession. Let's talk about it. I am going to be exploring like the history of sex work in particular cities. I can't do like a whole global perspective because that would take like a million years. So we're going to have to settle for me just covering a handful of cities that is a flawed, you know, but realistic approach to kind of looking at the whole history of sex work, right? And then we're going to delve into some modern, more contemporary implications of all of that stuff, okay? So strap in. It's a lot. I have like 10 pages of notes. Wait, I'm a liar. 11 pages of notes about this. So we're gonna have fun. start with the experience that I had just doing the research for this episode. So I'm a sex worker myself, right? So I have my own preconceived notions or like perception of what sex work is, what sex work looks like, who sex workers are, you know, all that kind of stuff. So in my mind, I don't hold a lot of personal stigma against sex workers. So I get surprised when I encounter it almost. Not not to say that I don't expect it, but like every time it's like, wow, that is really antithetical to how I perceive this thing. Like that's crazy. So I came across a lot of anti-sex work propaganda, like a lot of things that claimed to be, you know, historical resources. And I'd start to read them and they would be just so flamingly horophobic, like not even reasonable. So I have plenty of examples of this happening, but the first one I want to mention, comes from a book by William W. Sanger. Fuck you, William. It's called The History of Prostitution. Its extent causes and effects throughout the world. I think based on that title, it's gonna be fine. This is the first thing that I read in this book. Okay, this is the first line of the introduction, he writes. Arguments are unnecessary to prove the existence of prostitution. The evil is so notorious that none can possibly gainsay it. But when its extent, its causes, or its effects are questioned, a remarkable degree of ignorance or carelessness is manifested. Few care to know the secret springs from which prostitution emanates. 
Few are anxious to know how wide the stream extends. Few have the desire to know the devastation it causes. Society has formally laid a prohibition on the subject, and he who presumes to argue that what affects one may injure all must prepare to meet the frowns and censures of society. Bro, what? Huh? Like, who hurt this man? It's always hurt men causing issues, honestly. But no, that's crazy. Like, to call all sex work evil, you know, this evil is notorious to this guy. Like, that's so filled with venom for no reason. But the thing is that even this deeply whorephobic media still concedes that, and this is a quote, you know, we can trace it, it being prostitution, from the earliest twilight in which history dawns to the clear daylight of today, without a pause or a moment of obscurity, end quote. Sex work is the oldest profession. You know, some people will argue and say it's parenting, whatever, but sex work the without pause or moment of obscurity you know is basically just saying that sex work is consistent sex work has always been around and will always be around so i think that's really important to establish that as sex workers we are participating in a very long-standing tradition a very long-standing culture and i'm excited to talk about it so I kind of have a thesis going into this, right? I am trying to persuade you of something. And that is to be pro the decriminalization, not legalization, okay, the decriminalization of sex work. And I'm being specific with my language here because there's a difference between promoting the legalization of sex work versus promoting the decriminalization of sex work. And if you want more information on this beyond what I'm about to explain to you. I have a mutual on TikTok. Their at is Juicy Poma, J-U-I-C-Y-P-O-M-M-A. And they have a playlist on their profile up at the top called Decrim S Work. And it has just a treasure trove of lots of helpful information and explanations about decriminalization versus legalization of sex work. But I am going to give you like a miniature rundown. So you might be familiar with the concept of of decriminalization in the context of drugs, right? So legalization means that a once banned drug is now just completely legal under federal or state law, but decriminalization means that a once banned drug is still prohibited by law, but the legal system doesn't prosecute or criminalize a person for carrying a certain amount. So kind of parallel to that, it would be similar with sex work in which one case means like legalization means that sex work would be treated just like any other work and decriminalization would mean that while sex work might still be prohibited by law the legal system will stop pursuing and penalizing sex workers for being sex workers so why do we care about which well legalization is backdoor criminalization try and keep that phrase in mind right legalization is backdoor criminalization and what i mean by that is that if the state 
and the government right is now able to fully monitor and regulate sex workers that'll a happen disproportionately to different sex workers and also b entitle the government to tax our work and monitor our work and do things like require that we get checks at a certain time things like that and the thing is that sex workers have been regulating these things on our own for so long historically and we're going to get into that right we don't need the state to tell us when to get tested so there's that also you might be thinking because lots of people will think this about the nordic model and my mutual poma also talks a lot about how the nordic model is not something that sex workers want right it's not something that's working the thing is that the nordic model is a model that is designed to end the demand of sex work it's an end demand model and that means that it still criminalizes consumers and that puts sex workers in an unsafe position as well because it makes screening more difficult it makes people write more squeamish about getting screened and providing enough personal information so that forces sex workers to not screen clients as well it forces sex workers to do less secure versions of sex work right it pushes sex work underground so the nordic model is not a great solution either that's why when you hear sex workers push for decriminalization you should be using the same language as us if you want your allyship to be you know effective right we want a decriminalization of sex work so yeah this is totally educational but note that i am actively trying to persuade you of something and listen accordingly I'm going to start with a kind of historical overview of a couple key places and their history of sex work. So I'm going to start with Amsterdam, mostly because when people are talking about the Nordic model and bombarding sex workers with pro-Nordic model sentiments, it's kind of rooted in Amsterdam's historical culture of sex work and Amsterdam's journey of legalization. So let's talk about it. First, let's acknowledge some research failings, right? Contemporary sex work in Amsterdam is well known and well researched, but the research of historical sex work in Amsterdam is very much centered around who was more accessible to like people who made documents and created records, right? So sex workers who were more accessible to police and social workers and researchers are most of the data that we have about historical sex work in Amsterdam. So unregistered sex workers and sex workers who did not have contacts with these officials, we don't really know for sure their experience, though we do the best to piece it together. The first real uptick of sex workers being arrested and prosecuted in Amsterdam was in 1670 when a music hall multiplied and the municipality felt like it was going to tarnish the reputation of the area right and so they made a whole bunch of arrests and that was kind of where the criminalization in a documented way started right but that was kind of short-lived after 1710 when the municipality decided to focus more on the people who were getting sex work instead of the people who were providing the service so this is kind of the beginning of the foundations of that nordic model right because it's an end 
demand model. It seeks to end the demand of sex work by making it difficult for customers to procure the service. Okay, so that was kind of where that started. Then with the introduction of the French Penal Code in 1811, only the pimping of minors was criminalized, but at a local level, the police in Amsterdam actively did make arrests of other sex workers who weren't, you know, minors. So starting in like 1806, there were more and more French troops in the Netherlands. And so the director of police at the time introduced like a regulatory system that was on the surface said to like it was meant to promote safety from certain diseases, right? Like they wanted to prevent the spread of syphilis. And so they started having registered sex workers get mandatory medical checkups. And again, these were mandatory. These were compulsory. And the sex workers had to be examined by a surgeon and carry a red card around that contained their details from that examination. So that's, you know, an ideal because like I mentioned before, sex workers can handle that kind of thing on our own. And it's actually actively unhelpful and stigmatizing to have the state be involved in that process. Eventually, this regulation was abandoned. That was in 1813. And thereafter, officials and police, right, like kind of tacitly decided that they would remove sex workers from brothels. And they thought that would make it easier to keep tabs on the women there. So this is kind of an example of how state attempts to cut down on trafficking interfere with sex workers who are doing like consensual labor. So they're meaning to monitor so that people aren't being trafficked, but instead they're just criminalizing sex workers who are trying to make a living. It's horrible. But, you know, eventually it became more and more clear that to a certain extent, sex work in the city was necessary and couldn't be just eradicated by removing sex workers from brothels because they just found other ways to do it. Also in Europe, in more than Amsterdam and all sorts of places, there became a kind of general fear of this concept of white slavery. Shitty name, I don't like it. But it's this idea that people just became nervous that white women were being coerced into sex work at very high rates. Okay, so drawing upon those fears, which kind of rose after 1813, Amsterdam decided to lean the way of the abolitionists at the time. And in 1897, they closed down the brothels again on the grounds that they encouraged trafficking. So the result of this, as happens over and over again, when you criminalize sex work like this, is that sex work was driven underground. So sex workers just found a new way to distribute their service throughout the city. This also, you can see this mechanism in the modern day when you look at how SESTA-FOSTA has impacted sex workers online. And we'll talk about that more later, but it's really a very common cycle that we just keep falling into and we see over and over. Women just started working at cover-up businesses like massage parlors and cigar stores and the classic, you know, the cheap hotel. And since the banning of those brothels in 1897, they did eventually come into favor again. They became tolerated 
slowly but surely as long as they worked alone. So police would largely leave sex workers alone if they weren't a part of an organization or an illegal brothel. But regardless, pimping and brothels continued to exist and were also gradually tolerated by authorities, especially since the police were simply struggling to regulate their activities. Like they were just doing a bad job at regulating sex workers. So they started to give up, you know, the rise of sex work in the 1980s at this point really put a strain on Amsterdam and they really were forced to revise the policy. So they legalized sex work and brothels at the end of the 1990s. Because of this kind of above surface work happening, authorities started having requirements about the working conditions of women providing sex work. So this unfortunately only applied to window and brothel sex work, meaning that other sex workers did not get as much protection or consideration and most sex work was unregulated. And this is the point I was making before about how legalization unevenly affects sex workers because only sex workers who have access to these forms of safer sex work get to reap the benefits, quote unquote. And this is specifically unfortunate in Amsterdam because escort services and home sex work were practiced by a third to a half of the total sex workers in Amsterdam. Like that is a large chunk of the sex workers in Amsterdam at this time. But regardless, the working spaces of sex workers continue to grow and take multiple forms, right? People continue to do street work and also work in private clubs and at home. And the international reputation of Amsterdam led to the like diversification of entertainment venues and the booming of their sex tourism industry. So there are lots Lots of different kinds of sex workers that you can come across in Amsterdam, right? You can come across someone who does full service on the street. They are often referred to in the literature as street walkers. Socially, they're positioned in a place of less privilege than other sex workers. They are the most vulnerable sex workers because they have to solicit on the street and they often provide their services in locations like hotels or in clients' vehicles, right? Also, in the past they've used like parks and alleys, empty buildings, and all those places, all those locations are definitely still options nowadays, but they've always been the most vulnerable sex workers doing the most high risk work. Also in Amsterdam, you may come across a window sex worker or a window prostitute, and they provide their services in a working space, much like, you know, a display in a store. It was enabled by economic value at the time that were like pro efficiency and productivity and like quick consumption. So a suck and fuck at the time cost like 60 pounds for 20 minutes and was the most common service provided at the time. The rent of a window for a day's work, which was usually eight hours for a shift, could be anywhere from 80 to 150 pounds. And that's based in 2014 prices. And that does vary depending on like the day of the week and like what time it is and where your window is. Same as any kind of marketing, location, location, location. But essentially window workers were visible to the public 
while being in a semi-private environment. And you know, despite being on display, they were in a lot of control of their interactions. So they could decline clients, they could ignore customers and pedestrians. Under the terms of regulations enacted in 2000, window workers are required to be registered. So you do not have access to this form of sex work in Amsterdam unless you are registered. And registering is, you know, a class barrier in an already, for lack of a better term, low class position, which is crazy. But, you know, moving on, there were also sex workers who worked in brothels. So there were precursors to brothels, which were like taverns and inns and other like non-licensed places that were referred to as body houses and sometimes music houses. And they were the thing that came before the brothel. And the meaning of brothel is when you privatize sex work in one place using a business model. So often there is a physical location that is the brothel and you hire sex workers to work in your brothel and that is privatized. Also, sometimes the sex workers would physically live in the brothel as well. So they were, you know, live in sex workers. And there were also people who commuted back and forth. And these were often referred to as quote unquote fetched whores. Kind of cut. Anyways, <laughs> nowadays brothels are more like a club-like atmosphere and you can meet and get services from a sex worker in one of the rooms in the brothel. There are also sex workers who work for some kind of agency and they have employment that way and so they cater to more specific clients. Their work does tend to be a little less regular than sex workers who do like window work or club work but they're often paid more and they have to meet fewer clients and that's a plus most of the time but they don't have like a physical working space they often move about the city because clients are in different locations and that does make their interactions with clients a little more vulnerable so they might not be able to choose the meeting place and that really lets go of a lot of important control also there's generally less supervision since they're moving around and you can take that as a pro or a con but since they're on the move they're being looked at less by authorities and police. Before 2014 legislation in Amsterdam, independent workers were told that they had to register officially under the title of prostitute, erotic service provider, or personal service provider. And those registries were public. Yes, they were public. So sex workers were also told to register under a professional name or a stage name since their home address was also public yes so that's actually horrible and horrifying after legislation that did get addressed also the age of consent for being like a legal registered sex worker got raised to 21 and they also added that escorts and home-based sex workers also had to register with the tax office to ensure they also have access to 
the social services and to give authorities more control over them. Again, mixed bag of good and bad. So this legislation essentially gave that third to a half of sex workers who work at home or who are escorts the same treatment that other legalized sex workers were getting, but it also means that the state had more control over them in general. And again, this is wrapped up with the aim of trying to reduce sex trafficking and sex workers get all caught up in it every time, every time. And that's how you get backdoor decriminalization because we get overly monitored by the state. So at this point, we are talked out of Amsterdam, okay? Amsterdam is a dead horse and we do not need to beat it any longer. I'm going to talk about a handful more cities. And of course, this is not anywhere near exhaustive. This is a fraction of a fraction of the sex work history that I could be covering. But up next, I'm going to be kind of briefly covering these cities. So not nearly as in-depth as Amsterdam. We are going to kind of blow through them. First, let's talk about Cairo. So sex work in Cairo can be traced back to the Fatimid period and that's between like 969 and 1171. Sex workers in Cairo were notably like more integrated rather than ostracized at this time and were part of the like larger laboring class. They dressed in traditional attire like traditional wrapping cloths and a loose head veil. Also sex workers were distinguished with red anklets on their legs because people wanted to be able to identify them. They were also concentrated in particular areas, so they were distant from more residential neighborhoods or they were also like near entertainment centers or around lakes and areas like that. So they were a part of the laboring class, but they were still like othered and kept kind of away from larger society at this time. Sex work was also associated with like lower class entertainers, musicians, and dancers. Also pre-modern sex work was a pretty informal sector at this time, though regardless they still subjected sex workers to taxation. And specifically under the Mamluks, these taxes were substantial sources of revenue for the state. And that was was between like 1250 and 1922. So that was a great chunk of time that these taxes were basically just making the state money. And that's a problem for modern sex workers also in that the state, if they were to legalize us, they would start taxing us and that would likely just be a great source of revenue for the state so they can sink more money into the military that they don't need. But back to Cairo, sex work and the taxation of such, like that mechanism kind of was intersecting with the slave trade also. So court records of the Ottoman period reveal many cases where pimps were actually just buying women from their brothers.
brothels. So that's, you know, a far less consensual arrangement. And this is another example of the conflation of trafficking with sex work. Many European travelers to Egypt forced African slaves to practice sex work. And that's not really what we're talking about. That's not really sex work. That's trafficking. That's being trafficked and enslaved. Not the same thing. And they continued to be abusive in their tax collecting practices. In fact, casual female workers were under a constant threat of being randomly accused of and registered as sex work providers. It was truly an ideal. And speaking of an ideal, in 1798, when the French came to Egypt, there was also issues of like intersecting racial bias because the French were claiming that Egyptian women were mixing with French and ruining them. And so the French government got heavily involved and also started requiring that sex workers register and also undergo health inspections or suffer harsh penalties. Now let's talk about the environment in brothels. So life in a brothel was marked by a lot of competition between the woman who is overseeing the establishment and the people she's employing. In these establishments, women normally needed to rely on a pimp or a manager in order to be protected from like greedy buyers and like physically abusive and exploitative customers. And so there were a lot of tense factors existing in a brothel, right? Feeling competitive with your female manager and also potentially being abused by a aggressive customers, needing to coordinate with a potentially exploitative manager. Like, it's a mess. In the 1920s, abolitionism, so the idea that we should just eradicate sex work entirely, goofy, became a prominent argument in public discourse, and a lot of organizations actively campaigned for it. Nationalists, religious authorities, local feminists, British purity movement advocates, and colonial administrations were all supporting abolition of licensed prostitution. This abolitionism was eventually implemented in 1949 when the prime minister at the time had a military decree number 76 and that closed the brothels. Then this process was completed in 1951 when law 68, a regulation against debauchery was passed and that that law, which is still in place today, calls for the prosecution of third parties as well as women working as sex workers. And any woman found engaging in sex work is subject to at least three months imprisonment and also a fine that could be anywhere between 250 and 300 Egyptian pounds. But again, women could just be accused of being sex workers by being on the street. People could just accuse them of soliciting and they could be charged with quote urging men to commit adultery or committing shameful acts in public. So the environment for women at this time in Cairo is very stressful and rife with tension. Also most of the time sex workers took clients and those clients arranged the location where their sexual encounters would take place and sex 
workers took that risk, right? Because that's a vulnerable position. And often they would also commonly go with a group of clients. And so it would be like a group of friends who split the cost basically. And that would mean that that worker had to work more and serve more customers for less money, but they had to agree to it at the time often because they weren't able to freely decline work because it was a matter of survival. And heavy criminalization made it difficult to work out in the open where you could be protected. And whenever there is a kind of criminalization that leads to sex workers needing to go underground, especially criminalization that makes customers more squeamish because it puts more weight on them. We also see a parallel resurgence of pimps or managers. That heavy monitoring and heavy regulation, that always leads to the resurgence of managers because it makes them in demand because you need a manager to protect you from dangerous clients since the state is not going to cooperate with you on going after or pursuing bad customers. You have to handle it yourself and by yourself, you know, that often means a manager, someone else, and that leaves you very open to exploitation. So all in all, right, criminalization doesn't stop the sex work. It just pushes it to more dangerous places. Though as time goes on, we see a rise of sex tourism regardless because people will want to fuck when they go to a place. No amount of criminalization will stop that from happening, right? So sex work that was geared towards tourists and is currently geared towards tourists are not just restricted to providing sex also, they also offer like other services like picking you up at the airport and spending time with you. I have a quote from a sex worker who talked about like a typical day for her with a client and she says, I pick them up from the airport, show them furnished apartments to rent, arrange a domestic servant, do shopping, bring other prostitutes and let them choose. I take them to nightclubs, dance with them and go to their apartment to sleep with them. And that is not a full quote, just so you know there is more. But yeah, essentially sex work grew so much that it collided with the tourism industry. And you'll see this in a lot of places. There is always a sex tourism industry that is running parallel to the on the surface tourism industry. Next, I want to talk a little bit about Istanbul. So unlike other European countries in the 19th and 20th century, in Turkey, the issue of sex work wasn't as like closely tied to the feminist movement or the pro-woman movement at the time. So sex work in Turkey is not really considered like a symbol of oppression of women the way that it's perceived in other areas. So that could be for a wide variety of reasons. Even it could be due to research flaws because we just don't have a lot of information about the feminist movement in Turkey. So it's fully possible that people do perceive it that way and just the research does not know. But that was interesting. Studies that were carried out in like 1920 ish claim there are approximately 2,000 registered sex workers in the city. By the 1930s, the Turkish state law mandated that non-citizens actually could not be registered as sex workers in Turkey. And so immigrant women 
who were caught engaging in sex work were deported very often at this time and still often are today. So sex workers abroad also often face the issue of deportation in addition to sex workers locally facing housing issues. So it's really a lose-lose. Also women in Turkey were forcibly registered as sex workers if police caught them three times in the act of selling sex. So it wasn't a consensual thing, it's more that the police would like add you to a registry once they caught you a certain amount of times. Also the way that brothels in Istanbul worked, they often incorporated an exploitative debtor system and so that means that the person would loan money to sex workers instead of like paying them necessarily and that loan would be at an incredibly high interest rate meaning that that sex worker would never be able to pay off their debt so it's just indentured servitude it's horrible in these brothels sex workers also have to deal with something common in most brothels right potential violence committed by clients occurred regularly and a state-led efforts to provide employment for women also at this time were specifically off limits to you if you had engaged in sex work in the past. So sex workers in Turkey as sex workers everywhere have it really rough. Let's move along, we're zipping by here to Tel Aviv specifically. So we're gonna like jump to the British mandate period because that's where I think some interesting stuff is. And I mean, it's all interesting, but can only talk about so much. But during the British mandate period, large scale Jewish migration resulted in a large number of immigrants seeking employment and income. And these immigrants were finding it really difficult to find a place in the existing labor market. So Jewish sex workers were mainly and mostly new immigrants in their 20s or older, and they were often Eastern or Central European, and they would arrive in Palestine in the 1920s and in larger numbers than that even in the 30s. So these women, they were flying in, right? And most Jewish sex workers, especially adult women, seem to have have been able to determine their own conditions of work to an extent they were not restricted to brothels and like other establishments like that they were mostly like independent workers though there were brothels of course because there's always brothels they were often situated in hotels or cafes in Tel Aviv due to women's like great presence in the public sphere and by great I mean like they had a presence I don't mean like great as in yeehaw Ah, good. <laughs> anyway, due to women's greater presence in the public sphere, sex work was also often provided like lavish places like along the seafront or in cafe rooms or in rented rooms or rented apartments. Also in less glamorous places like in taxis or in brothels. So services were being provided a really wide variety of 
Yes. Now, let's talk about Chicago, because Chicago is, I think, a good representation or like a good node of sex work's early history in the United States. 19th century sex workers in Chicago wore a really distinctive fit. And I bet as I describe this, like you're going to be able to kind of conjure the image in your mind. So they wore wigs and jewelry and heavily embellished gowns and fancy hats and lots of makeup. And they typically had very strong networks with other women. So very strong networks of companionship because often sex workers in Chicago were escaping like abusive homes and they were open to the idea of kind of finding like new family and they often chose new names to symbolize like a break from their previous lives. Brothels at this time were very family oriented. Sex workers in brothels often referred to the madame in the brothel as mother, which is distinct from other brothels we've learned about, right, where that relationship is fairly competitive. So that's unique about Chicago. Also, let's talk about the demographic of this situation a little bit. So although white women were historically like overrepresented in brothel sex work, only 15% of sex workers in 1880 in Chicago were black. So at this time, black sex workers were more common in Southern areas for obvious reasons, because the racial makeup of the United States is just aggressively a remnant of slavery. But we don't need to get into that too much right now. By the start of the 20th century, Chicago was a pretty established city with a more equalized like gender ratio than other cities. And also there were nodes of new and fresh ideas ideas about like sexuality spreading across the country. And these ideas led to a criminalization of sex work. So people just got paranoid the more they learned and more and more rigid and conservative leading to criminalization. So this kind of almost warm familial environment got pretty shattered. So sex workers didn't just get fined, they were placed in institutions and also sent to specialized courts that often sentenced them to probation. Chicago's revised criminal code of 1905 made sex work a crime officially and by 1911 there were 10 state and city laws against sexual commerce and the city authorities used them to close the previously tolerated districts where sex workers were practicing and this was part of just an effort to globally abolish sex work at the time. This process of criminalization was completed by 1913 and the criminality of women's sexual labor was confirmed when a specialized morals court was created and they prosecuted and persecuted sex workers. After this, what do we get? An uptick of pimps and managers. Of course, it's predictable like clockwork, okay? So by the turn of the 21st century, there were 16,000 women in the six county Chicagoland area who met the definition of a sex worker. That is a great 
great deal of people engaging in this profession who are needing to do it on the sly because of hefty criminalization. And this definition that they were meaning, let me read it to you, is as follows. So sex work is the exchange of money or something of value, including drugs, shelter, or other survival needs for sexual activity. This includes vaginal, oral, and anal sex, as well as manipulation of another person's genitals for the purpose of sexual arousal. So at this time, that kind of is such a big catch-all that it might also catch people who don't consider themselves sex workers. So the fact that it includes things like drugs and shelter and survival needs outside of money means that a lot of people who have been previously calling their work, you know, just how I get by as a woman or like dating for dollars or survival sex are actually sex workers at this time, like definitionally, and wouldn't even call themselves that. Definitionally? Did I just make up that word? Whatever. So Chicago was pretty central to international transportation in the 1900s and also beyond. And so that means there is a large immigrant community that exists there. And because of that, whenever you have a place where a lot of people are coming and going, it can lead to it being a hive for sex trafficking. And again, we have issues where officials are trying to intervene on sex trafficking and roping in sex workers, which sucks. At this time, we also have the resurgence of that white slavery anxiety that people were feeling. So during the progressive era, Chicago was the center of that belief. People were nervous that these innocent white country girls were being kidnapped and forced into sex slavery by sinister immigrant or black men, right? And this myth was largely promoted by like ministers and state's attorneys and the Women's Christian Temperance Union and uh, prominent feminists like Jane Addams and also, you know, the US Congress backed this up too. So these white slavery anxieties meant people and police were especially sympathetic to specifically white sex workers at the time. Other sex workers didn't really get that kind of love until maybe the 2010s when local women who are being like exploited by pimps were also starting to be viewed as victims of trafficking as opposed to sex workers. So people are like starting to try and mold the distinction, but not quite getting there, not quite hitting the mark. And so sex workers are still constantly getting harassed by police and there are no real breaks or stints of tolerance or legalization like we see in other cities that we've looked at. It just is constant police bombardment and that makes pimps just a permanent part of the scene nearly. Eventually, most sexual commerce was conducted in places like massage parlors or strip clubs, places like that. And the development of the internet and also like cell phones and stuff also facilitated the growth of sexual commerce that didn't have to happen on the street and didn't have to start in person. You know, like people could do their work in health spas or beauty salons, bars, truck stops in their houses. And like, you can arrange anything over the internet, right? And even though there is maybe increasing 
intolerance in the 21st century, sex workers still have a lot to fear from police. They are still harassed. Like I said before, there has never been a break. So today, most arrests in Chicago are driven by community complaints and the average sex worker is maybe arrested once in every 450 transactions. That might not sound like a lot to you, but imagine being arrested once every 450 tasks you did at work. Like, that's not reasonable. And the majority of these sex workers are charged with misdemeanors and released without bail, though they often, you know, don't show up for court dates because of lots of compounding factors. And doing that, you know, avoiding trial makes you liable for rearrest and indictment on serious charges that were worse than the original charges. And so it's just a mess. The legal system is on a surface level, really exploitative in this way. And also under the surface, after the second charge of prostitution became a felony, women became more vulnerable to police officers who were seeking bribes or freebies. You know, like the reports that police officers perpetrate a great deal of the violence against sex workers are accurate. They are subjected to violence at the hands of police officers more than 20% of the time that they are subjected to violence. Like a quarter of the violence that Chicago sex workers experience is at the hands of police officers. That's crazy. Just, yeah, no words. Also, to make matters worse because their job needs to be even more difficult is the added layer of customer reviews. So that's a thing in Chicago where like in the earlier period, there were red light district newspapers like the Chicago Street Gazette that rated and critiqued women for the entertainment of other men. Today, there is still like a similar mechanism where sex workers are judged and their livelihoods often threatened by these reviews on specialized websites and places like Craigslist. So overall, sex work in Chicago, tough cookies like sex work anywhere. And I hope that after hearing all of that history, you see how the facts of the history back up that criminalization does not stop sex work from happening and legalization does not fully improve the lives of sex workers. I'm going to talk your ear off about this, but decriminalization is what sex workers want. And you should listen to us when we say that. Please use the right words. From there, I do want to just real quick talk about some groups and orgs that have existed historically that are of note. There have been lots of organizations and sex worker unions all throughout history, and they've had, you know, varying rates of success. There's COYOTE, which stands for Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics, and it was founded in the U.S. in 1973 by like a kind of liberal faction of the hippie movements. We don't like hippies here, just to make that clear, but not liking hippies doesn't make it less true that they were involved. And they were like part of reframing in a public way that sex work was like potentially an expression of sexual freedom. They had 30,000 members, but only 3% of the members were active sex workers. So they often like label themselves as a union 
union of hookers and whores, but really it's like just 3% of the members. Also, it was a coyote spokesperson who kind of brought the term sex worker into mainstream use. So thanks for that. But that's all I have to thank you for, I think. I don't believe this spokesperson was a sex worker herself. But I don't think she was. And so that also adds like insults to injury, but whatever. There is also the DeGraff Foundation, which is a major source of pro-sex worker propaganda and has official status as the Dutch Institute for Prostitution Issues in Amsterdam. They founded the De Rode Draad or the Red Thread, which is now one of the most famous unions for prostitution in the world, though this also has a kind of similar issue to Coyote where a minority of the members are actual sex workers. So I believe they only have a hundred members in total also. And there also is no record of them actually pursuing a trade union issue. So like I said, these groups, they vary. They vary in their effectiveness. So Coyote gave us the popularization of the phrase sex worker and that's great but outside of that don't really need anything else there's also the world's whores congress which honestly i love that name but the way that this website i used for research talked about it is incredibly stigmatizing and i'm going to read off a quote about this congress it says the record of the congress shows that it included open and frank discussion with a wide range of opinions expressed including support for prostitution, desire to leave it, and seeing it as a necessary evil. Okay. Some of the testimony was harrowing, for example. One woman told of being R-worded and beaten by her pimp when she was 13, and another spoke of being violently beaten and coerced into sex work by her boyfriend who became her pimp. In spite of this, the organizers pressed ahead with their predefined agenda and adopted a manifesto demanding the decriminalization of both prostitution and pimping. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. This is from the Nordic Model Now website, so it has negative opinions on decriminalization, clearly, right? Because decriminalization is not compatible with the Nordic Model. The Nordic Model is an end-demand model, and decriminalization does not seek to end or decrease the amount of sex work that's happening. The Nordic model has this agenda, you know, it sees sex work as a necessary evil. It doesn't see it as just another profession, right? With humans who work the profession and deserve like good employment rights. It also does that thing where it conflates human trafficking with sex work. They are not the same thing. Human trafficking is not consensual. Sex work is a job one chooses to have. It's a form of self-employment and they're distinct from one another, okay? Also, this website tries to make an anti-union argument that's like almost valid. I'll explain. It's like better as an argument to be pro 
decriminalization. Like they've accidentally made a good pro-decrim argument here. And I'll read the quote. It says, for example, in 2007 in Germany, where prostitution is legalized, government research showed that less than 1% of prostituted persons were formally employed and only 5% even wanted any sort of registered employments within the industry. Right. So legalizing prostitution the way that it is legalized in Germany, for example, is not effective. We have the data. It does not encourage sex workers to, quote, like legitimize themselves via registering because there are barriers to getting registered and being registered makes you vulnerable because now there's information about you being a sex worker that's just on record and that's not safe. And if we want to talk about like my actual opinion on unions, you know, I'm always going to be pro-union, but obviously there has to be like successful infrastructure. And it seems like consistently in the past, these unions have not been what they've seemed, right? So it seems like their goal or their main aim is not to like change the sex work industry, but is to change the image of the sex work industry and so often they invite pimps and customers and managers to also join but and this website poses a valid question like what legitimate union invites customers bosses and business owners to join it like that's not truly a workers union and so I'd be pro like a workers union for sex workers but that also comes across the issue of just being kind of impractical because of the nature of our work and the nature of our needing to hide our work often. How are we supposed to organize in these conditions, you know? Also, more nonsense from the nordicmodelnow.org. This is also a quote, content warning for a swerf being a crybaby. The use of the swerf term is a form of harassment. It is used to discredit the feminist analysis and to frighten women away from it. This is a tired old patriarchal tactic, but unfortunately, Fortunately, it is effective. All I have written in my notes under this is this is goofy. They are goofy. Because what? <laughs> the whole argument that like turf or swerf, like those terms to describe people with those views are a form of harassment is just projection because you know you're on some bullshit. So me accurately describing you is stressful to you. Also claiming that it discredits a feminist analysis. Honestly, this is why I don't even really fuck with feminism like that. Like I would much sooner call myself a womanist and I highly recommend you look up that term. It does a much better job of like centering black women and black women's issues because often like feminism is used in this weird wishy washy way that also prioritizes white people. We could get into that, but generally this is goofy. It's just goofy. So again, I really recommend looking at my mutual POMA's content on decriminalization because I could go on and on about how much I dislike the Nordic model, but they already have. So you should go check that out. Now, an analysis of the history of sex work, I think would be incomplete if I did not touch on SESTA-FOSTA because that was truly a mess and is a sparkling 
example of how conflating sex trafficking and sex work leads to horrible, horrible results. So SESTA-FOSTA, if you don't know, was intended to make it easier for police to cut down on illegal sex trafficking online. So the House bill known as FOSTA or the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act and the Senate bill known as SESTA, the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, it was designed to be allyship for sex trafficking victims. But instead, it disrupted the safe harbor rule. If you're not familiar with that, it's section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. And that act essentially allows the internet to successfully host user-generated content without holding platforms responsible for what those users generate. So basically, FOSTA-SESTA created an exception to section 230 that means that websites publish would be responsible if third parties are found, users like you and I are found posting ads for sex work. So that makes them suddenly liable to that. And that includes consensual sex work on their platforms. That makes them liable and that makes them paranoid and that makes them crack down on all of us sex workers and all of our platforms. It makes them deplatform us at insane rates. It leads to sex workers who engage in completely legal activity like me getting TikToks taken away, Twitter's taken down, Instagram's Thanos snapped out of the universe, you know, like it's truly a mess and it was completely avoidable. Like none of this had to be this way. The very last thing I want to touch on is the kind of most modern, most mainstream forms of sex work that I'm sure you've heard of, right? You've got sugar babies and you've got the OnlyFans girl, right? So sugar babies are people who enter an arrangement with a sugar daddy or a sugar mommy or a glucose guardian, whatever you want to call it. And you have some kind of interpersonal relationship with them in exchange for some kind of compensation. That compensation can look like an allowance. It can look like free use of a debit card. It can look like free housing. It can look like going out to dinner like it can look all sorts of ways but essentially you're exchanging like a relationship for something of value and the sugar can be anything right it can be just an interpersonal relationship that involves sex it can be something deeper than that they might want like a deeper connection whatever whatever but at the end of the day you're doing it for the coin you're doing it for your bag that's what a sugar baby is you've also got like OnlyFans models like me I myself am an OnlyFans model. I make content and I post content so that people can buy my content, right? I post content specifically to a subscription service so people can see the content that I post regularly and they subscribe by giving me a monthly payment and they can also buy additional content while they're there. So their subscription gives them access to the content that I post and also to content that I am selling exclusively to customers. And yeah, that's basically the 
rundown. I'm sure you've heard of an OnlyFans model. I don't think I need to break that down too much further for you. I really hope that this was a good experience for y'all. I hope that you learned something today from the origins of sex work in Amsterdam and Cairo and Istanbul and all these places to the modern OnlyFans girl like me talking to you right now. I hope you learned a little bit about like why it's so important to listen to sex workers, especially about how we want to operate within society because we are the oldest profession. We perform the oldest and most valuable service and we deserve respect and workers' rights. So help us get that. And if you have any questions or curiosities about the sources that I used on today's episode, you can always check out our website under sources. We have a website. It's bit.ly slash coming out evil. We don't have other socials yet, but for now, go to our website. We're also available on Spotify, Apple Music, Podbean, and also some yeah. podcasts. <laughs> We're working on Google Podcasts. So yeah, go to our website and check it out. Hell yeah. Music by audionautics.com.